This is our second in our series in the letter of First John. Just to remind us of what we saw last week in chapter 1. We saw what it means to say that God is light. We saw that light speaks of the truth of the Father himself as he makes himself known to us. And we saw that he's done that in a concrete way in Jesus Christ, an historical event in time and space. What that means is we can know the truth because it's not just an idea or a theory. It's a truth and it's a truth that's life-giving because it flows from this relationship with the Father and the Son. This fellowship with the Father and the Son creates fellowship with one another. And it's a fellowship that gives true joy. Our response to this life-giving truth in Jesus, we saw it was to confess our sins, to receive the forgiveness achieved by Jesus in his death and resurrection. Now we finished last week at 2 verse 2, but I want to start again at 2 verse 1 today where John gives us his reason for writing this letter. He says that he writes, so that you may not sin, in verse 1. Later in the letter, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Very high call, isn't it? But we can't take this as a call to sinless perfection. He's already told us if we say that we do not have sin, then the truth is not in us, that we actually make God out to be a liar. He's not saying here, God expects that you, once you're a Christian, will stop sinning. Or that you'll reach a point where temptation will no longer be a struggle and you will become like Jesus, perfect in your holiness and righteousness in this life. That is the ultimate promise, isn't it? For God's children that will come to pass one day at the resurrection. And it will happen through God's renewing power, not, not through ours. But in this life, while we know the call to hate sin, to flee from sin, we're never told to expect that the battle will stop in this life. In fact, I trust that your experience might be like mine, that as you get older, the battle with sin only gets fiercer. The more we live in the battle, the more we become aware and honest about our own weakness and frailty. When we're young, we can idealistically think that the sins that we struggle with now will one day no longer be a problem. Once we mature, once we become better at fighting sin. But as time goes on and as the years pass and as we mature in our faith, we can either become disillusioned because we haven't been able to overcome that sin or maybe we give up altogether but Maturity 
is not about becoming better. Maturity is about depending more and more on God's grace. A mature Christian isn't someone who sins less. A mature Christian is someone who just takes less time when they sin to flee to the cross and receive his mercy. That's one of the most common words of advice I find myself giving the students at Flinders. Don't be idealistic in your battle to overcome sin. Rather, become confident in God's grace to carry you through that battle in every moment of your life. So what does he mean then when he says, I write to you so that you may not sin? Well, the key is what we saw last week. In chapter 1, the essence of sin is shunning the light. Shunning the light of God, walking in darkness. It's a rejection of God himself who is light. To sin is to reject fellowship with the Father. To refuse to know him and to relate to him as your Father. And it's to reject fellowship with the Son. To refuse to know him as your Redeemer and Lord, and your elder brother who brings you into the Father's family. So to turn from sin in repentance is to turn to the Father and to turn away from idolatry. That's why the final verse of this letter, 5.21, says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. To not sin in this context of John's letter, is simply to have all your faith and confidence in Jesus Christ alone. To prefer the light over the darkness. John wants us to not sin by remaining in this light where we have the assurance of cleansing and forgiveness. When I deliberately choose to take a sinful course of action, I have to pretend for a moment that God is not there. I have to pretend he doesn't see me, that in the dark no one sees what I do, not even him. I have to pretend that I'm not a child of the Father, that I'm not one who has Christ as Lord. I have to pretend that I'm not sanctified or filled with the Holy Spirit. When I choose to sin, I am for a moment a practical atheist. I'm the fool who says, in my heart, there is no God. But John reminds us, in verse 1, that we have a great assurance of grace when we do inevitably sin by preferring the darkness over the light. Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He is with us. He is on our side. John's using the language of priesthood here in these verses. It's one of the few times in the New Testament that this word propitiation appears. And it's a very specific word that refers to the animal sacrifices that people would bring to the temple. The animal would die in their place. The wrath of God, the just wrath that the people deserved would be turned aside and placed on them, on the animal instead. 
And then they would be free to approach God without fear or condemnation. It was an extremely violent and bloody ritual. As they experienced the horror of seeing an animal slaughtered. But it revealed the extent to which God is willing to go to atone for our sin. So while our sin of idolatry and our rejection of God is indeed a severe offence, we see in Jesus God's severe mercy in that he has done enough to deal with our sin. In the words of a, a song which we'll actually be learning in a few weeks, what love could remember the wrongs could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What a wonderful assurance we have. The Father not only forgives us for our individual sins... But even that ultimate sin of walking in darkness has been atoned for by the sun. Someone might spend their entire life in darkness and right at the end of their life have their eyes opened by God to see the light of Christ and at that moment know full forgiveness and freedom from sin. Last year I had the privilege of uh, taking a funeral for a man who came to know Christ in his mid-seventies and was a Christian for only six years of his life before he uh, went to glory. It was never, it's never too late, no matter how long we've been in the darkness to come into his light through Christ. This all makes for an authentic relationship with God the Father. Guilt and shame and fear are what destroys trust between people. But if someone says to you, no matter what you have done, no matter what you will do, I have provided a way for you to be forgiven. Such that there will never, ever be a barrier between me and you. Wouldn't you have a sense of assurance and security? in knowing that person. And if you know that that person, in saying that, has made great personal sacrifice in order to make that assurance possible. Well, in Jesus Christ, the Father has made the ultimate sacrifice in his Son to bring about that reconciliation. As I've been saying, this letter is a letter about assurance. It's about knowing, hence the title of our series, That You May Know. He uses this word know 22 times in this short letter. 
He says that we can, we can know that we have come to know him. We can know that we are in him. We can know love. We can know that we are of the truth. We can know that he abides in us. We can know the spirit of God and the spirit of truth. We can know that we abide in him. We know and believe the love that God has for us. We know that we love the children of God and know him who is true. That's a lot of knowing and that's just some of the times he uses this word know in his letter. Well, in our passage this morning, John points us to uh, really two places that we may find this assurance, this knowing. Firstly, it's in what God has done in the gospel, as we've been hearing. His action in Christ, his propitiation for our sins. And secondly, in seeing and recognising the fruit of his saving work in our lives. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. See how this clause, by this we know we have come to know him, is sandwiched between the propitiation of the cross in verses 1 and 2 and the response of our obedience in verse 3. Our assurance comes as we look back at the saving work of Christ and as we look forward to the work that the Father is doing in our lives to transform us into a people who love and obey. How can I know that I truly know Christ? Not just believe he exists or existed, not just knowing something about him, but actually know him relationally. How may I know that I love him? How may I know that the objective historical past action of God in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is actually real and effective today, 2,000 years later, in my life? Well, John says... The proof will be in the pudding. My life will be transformed by grace. And instead of living in the darkness of disobedience, I'll be living in the light of obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what I command you. Makes sense, doesn't it? If we truly love someone, we'll be be willing to listen to their requests and to fulfil them. Not out of duty or obligation, but because we love them. And Jesus, in verse 6, I've got it there, is set forth as an example for us. Anyone who says they know him, get the words right, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now this isn't a call to wear a, what would Jesus do, wristband. I don't know if you can even get them anymore, can you? Apparently, um, I just heard that from someone else, that uh, when Kurong 
the bookshop was asked, what's your most stolen item? Because they, people actually do steal from Kurong. Um, it is the, what would Jesus do wristbands? Maybe they're easy to slip into your pocket or if you put it on your wrist, no one will question whether you'd actually bought it or not. Ironic, isn't it? But it's not about what would Jesus do. It's not about looking at every scenario and trying to figure out or imagine what would Jesus do if he was in my shoes. This is not about Jesus being in my shoes. Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus loved the Father. And as a result, he followed the Father's commands. We're told in verse 6 that if we abide in him, it will be shown in living as Jesus did, which means loving the Father, seeking to know what the Father commands and joyfully doing it. I think there's a bit of a popular misconception about how Jesus actually went about obeying the Father from day to day. And this misconception is that Jesus had some kind of supernatural direct line of communication by which he heard the Father speaking to him in every moment, telling him what to do, or at least in the the big important decisions. The problem with that view, that Jesus has a special access to the Father that we don't have, is that it would mean he didn't actually truly share our human experience. As Christians, as creatures, we don't hear the Father continually speak to us. Rather, we're called to live by faith, especially in times when he seems particularly silent If we don't hear him speaking, it doesn't mean we just stop and put everything on hold until we hear him speak again. We're called to walk by faith, not by sight. The way we are designed to be as people, people who are filled and led by the Holy Spirit, is that he, the Spirit, empowers and energises us to walk in the Father's commands as revealed in his word. Ezekiel gave this promise, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The reference there, statutes and rules, is a reference to the law, to the word. God has graciously given us his will by putting it in black and white in the scriptures. And the sign that we're truly led by the Spirit is we're willing to hear what he says in his word and as the Spirit empowers us then to obey it. This was the life that Jesus lived. He knew the scriptures, not as something he'd downloaded directly because of his divine nature, but he learnt the scriptures from childhood, just as every other Jewish boy or girl would have. 
He depended upon the scriptures such that in uh, the time of the fiercest temptation, when he was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, his answer consistently was, it is written. When he spoke about his mission of going to Jerusalem to be crucified and to be raised on the third day, he told his disciples that this is what the scriptures say must happen. And as he hung on the cross in his deepest, darkest time, as he hung hung there on our behalf and bore the weight of the sins of the world, he just kept quoting scripture. And everything that he did there was so that the scripture might be fulfilled. This life of spirit-filled and spirit-led obedience was done by him on our behalf. He lived this life as a paradigm of what true human living should be when sin is no longer an obstacle, living in the true light of God. So Jesus is a picture of the true person of faith, one who trusts implicitly in God's promises and walks in them, even at times when it seems as if the Father is silent. On the road to the cross, Jesus called people to take up your cross and follow me. This was the call. Walk as I walk. The same call that John gives here in his letter. But it wasn't a do what I do, but a love like I love. Love the Father as I love the Father. A love that's taking me to the cross for you. Now verses 7 and 8 tell us that to obey the Father actually boils down to this one commandment, which we see in verse 10 as the commandment to love our brothers and sisters. Now it shouldn't surprise his readers to hear this. It shouldn't surprise us. If we know anything about Jesus and his teaching, love is at the heart of God's law. If a person truly loves God with all their being and loves their neighbours as themselves, they'll find that their lives match up with all of the commands and statutes and rules and instructions given in the scriptures. Because all of these commands and statutes and laws are all about loving God and loving our neighbour. So in that sense, as John says, it's an old command. God has been saying it from day one. It's the commandment that God himself lives by. God loves his neighbour as himself. It's the law of God in the sense that it describes how God himself operates. So the command to love... It's been there from the beginning. It's essentially a command to live truly as one made in his image. And when Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, he wasn't saying it in the sense that this is something you've never heard before. What was new about his commandment 
is that there is now a new way to obey it. No longer through law, but through grace. It's in loving one another as he has loved us that we love one another on the basis of Christ's love for us. Finally, by grace, we're free. We're free to be people who reflect the very character of God himself. And so John here says that this old commandment is a new commandment in this sense. It's come to us and been displayed in a whole new way in Jesus Christ. It's a sign, a sign of the newness of life that God is bringing about as he renews all things. He says in verse 8, The darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Jesus, the light of the world, is at work in people's lives. And as he does his work of bringing people to know the Father and setting them free to obey, the darkness is being pushed back to make way for the light of God. And this isn't just a private thing. It's not just my personal religious life. It's not just the darkness that that resides within me that has been pushed aside. This is a global cosmic thing. The darkness is the darkness of evil spiritual powers. The darkness of humanity in organised, sophisticated rebellion against God. What John calls in his letter, the world. It's a system into which every human being is born and of which we're a part. It's out of this system that we need to be rescued and brought into the kingdom of light. This is the darkness that is passing away as the light of the gospel of Christ is being shone through the proclamation of the gospel. We shouldn't ever underestimate the power of the gospel to bring transformation in this world, in this life. While we look forward to the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, we, we should expect to see the gospel working its way out and transforming this world. You may have heard just this week that the the latest recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize is the Ethiopian Prime Minister or President. I'm not sure what his title is. He's an evangelical Christian in a country where the majority of people are Muslims or Ethiopian Orthodox. He's received this prize because he, he has sought to, to practice his faith in Jesus Christ in the way that he does his work as a, uh, as a minister, as a uh, politician. Uh, he brought about um, a level of reconciliation between Muslims and Christians in Ethiopia. He helped to settle a dispute uh, within the Orthodox Church. The Orthodox Church had split into two in Ethiopia and he brokered a reconciliation. And uh, he has... Um, brought about peace over the border conflict with the neighbouring Eritrea. That's all an outworking of him as a Christian man knowing the gospel and having it transform him. And as he goes out and says, now I'm going to love my neighbour as myself in my position as minister and then prime minister, we see the gospel bringing transformation to the world. 
So coming into the light isn't about me as a private individual. It's part of the massive thing that God has planned for the whole universe. To confess my sins and to receive the forgiveness achieved by Christ and then to go forth and love makes me a part of the new creation that one day is going to completely take over the old. So this message comes with a solemn call to us. Verse 11 warns us that just as loving our brothers and sisters is a sign of being in the light, so too living in hatred is a sign that we're stumbling in the darkness. Now this word hate is an interesting one. It occurs in the Bible in a number of ways with which we may not feel comfortable Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Same word in the Greek, hate. Even more confronting, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Same word in the Greek, hate. In the Bible, the word hatred refers not primarily to emotion, but to covenant action. Some of the Psalms speak of God hating sinners. doesn't mean that he ceases to be loving towards them, but it means that their sin, in the sense that we've been speaking of it, a desire to live in the darkness rather than the light, their sin means that they must be excluded from the covenant community and all its blessings. Jesus uses this word in a comparative sense. Our love for people and for our own life must not exceed our love for him. He alone is to be our object of devotion. He is to be our primary love. And when it comes down to a choice, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. In those cases, as Jesus speaks of here, hatred is a good thing. It ensures that nothing gets in the way of an undivided love for Christ. So in the context here of John, when he uses this word, he, I think he uses it in the, that same sense of a, a covenant action, a rejection of a person. To hate my brother or sister is any way in which I fail to treat them as part of the covenant community. Whenever I fail to treat my brother or sister as one who's in the family of the Father and the Son. Anything short of full acceptance, of welcoming, inclusion and fellowship of my brothers and sisters in Christ is of the darkness, not of the light. So this is a call not just to be merely nice people, to be civil, to be pleasant to one another. Anyone can do that. But only a child of the Father can love as Christ loved. 
Brothers and sisters, let us hold firm to these two things. These two things that John says give us assurance. The glorious liberating truth of the gospel and a devotion to love one another. Because we are those who walk in the light. And as we do this, the light of the gospel will be adorned, will be confirmed. People will see that the words we speak in speaking of Christ are true, are real because of the transforming power they have in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we hear this solemn call. This call to not walk in darkness and to hate, but to walk in the light and to love one another. Father, we confess along with our brother Chin that so often we don't love because we think that people are hard to love. Yet when we see your love displayed at the cross, when we see you coming to those who were your enemies, who hated and despised you, who wanted to put you to death, yet you still loved and forgave and restored them. Father, we we realise that this is the love you've shown to us and this is the love that you call us to and the love that you, by your Holy Spirit, will enable us to show to those around us. Father, give us a deep, deep assurance that we know you, that we abide in you. And we pray, Father, that in each of our lives we will see that transforming work of your spirit to make us more like Jesus. Help us, Father, in the times when we do have fierce battles with sin and temptation. Help us to depend on your grace and not our own effort. But may those times cause us more and more to depend on your grace and to appreciate your great love for us and empower us through them to uh, take our eyes off ourselves and onto uh, the mission, the calling that you have for us as your people. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn, which speaks of the, the light of God that has been shone forth in Christ. Oh, the splendour of his greatness.